Pandemic, Price Wars and Petrostates. That's the subtitle of a paper exploring the new energy order in the wake of the coronavirus. It's by Michael Bradshaw, Professor of Global Energy here at Warwick Business School. And in this Core Insights podcast, he'll be sharing his thoughts on the fossil fuels and green energy landscapes in the wake of the crisis. Via the new normal technology of Zoom, I put it to him that the prediction is that global energy demand in 2020 will fall by 6%, at least according to the International Emergency Agency, the IEA. And I asked him to put that into historical context. How big a dip is it and what are the implications? I think that 6% figure is the IEA's estimate for year-end. And so that's making some fairly heroic assumptions about the, 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 the pace of recovery. If that happens, then it will be far more significant than the, the decline we saw in the 2008 financial crisis. But actually, what has happened most recently is even more dramatic. The IEA had published data um, for to the April time to show that the, the fall in oil demand was 25-30% of global demand fell in a month. And that was, uh, I think, eight times greater than the fall in 2008. This is really historical levels of decline, both in terms of the amount of decline and how quickly it's happened. It's made it very difficult, in fact, impossible for markets to adjust. So that's meant overproduction. And indeed, production may have to stop. What would be the knock-on effects of that? Well, if you think back a few, it's only a few weeks ago now where we had the oil, an oil price war break out on the eve of the pandemic, um, really starting to, to drive down economic activity. We, we ended up in a situation where Saudi Arabia and Russia couldn't agree on production cuts and, and Saudi Arabia was going to flood the market. So actually more oil was coming onto the market just as the full impact of the pandemic was becoming apparent. The concern now is that oil is continuing to flow and all the storage around the world, both proper oil storage, but tankers and rail cars and whatever you can get your hands on, is actually filling up. And we will reach a point of what what the tanks will be full and production will have to physically be stopped. And we're, we're approaching that point now. And what will ordinary people see in their everyday lives? Well, if you were able to drive anywhere, you'd see the price at the pump has fallen quite dramatically. And this has also happened with, with natural gas, but in, in different ways. So that's one of the factors. But of course, also, this is having a knock on to the financials of the oil companies. So some of the oil companies have announced a cut in their dividends. So if someone was an investor, and was expecting a healthy dividend from Shell or BP, they're going to be disappointed. Now, in your paper, you mentioned the impact the shale gas revolution, so-called, has had on oil and gas production. Um, what forms that taking? Well, the shale gas revolution, which is principally in North America and far more so in, in the United States and Canada, actually resulted in a dramatic change of fortune for the United States. And if we roll back a decade or so, the United States was a significant oil importer and expecting to become a significant gas importer. And so this new technology or combination of existing technologies producing gas and then later oil from shale rock has turned the United States into a major producer. In fact, it's the world's largest oil, oil producer today. So dramatically changed the fortunes of the, of the United States. But there's always been a concern about the financial sustainability of the shale gas model, which is very different from conventional oil and gas. And it requires constant drilling 
to maintain production. And the constant drilling means it, it requires constant finance. Um, and more than once, we've seen uh, Saudi Arabia through OPEC trying to drive the price down to put the shale business out of debt, out of business. And they tried that in 2014-15. It didn't work because the industry in the United States improved its efficiency, but because also money was continuing to, to flow and you know, people likened it, have likened it to a giant Ponzi scheme. The problem now is that there is no demand for the oil and the money stopped flowing. If we leave the financial implications aside for the moment and look at the environmental impact, as if to counterbalance that shale gas revolution, the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change seemed to be persuading growing numbers of people to want less in the way of fossil fuels. Are we talking about equal and opposite forces here, in some ways cancelling each other out or what? Well, eventually, yes. But there's always been a big question about the pace of the energy transition, which is a shorthand for the, the switch from fossil fuels to, to renewable forms of energy. And the question really is, and how quickly would it happen? When, for example, would we hit peak oil demand? What would happen thereafter? And I mean, two schools of thought, really. One saying, historically, energy transitions take a matter of decades, 30, 40 years. We're going to still need an awful lot of oil and oil demand is not going to peak before 2040. And the other side arguing that, you know, look, look at what the climate change science is telling us. We're running out of time. We need to accelerate the development of, of low carbon energy and we need to constrain the production of fossil fuels, let alone their consumption. And if you add on to that the coronavirus itself, what are the kinds of questions and issues the oil-producing nations are having to consider at the moment? Well, it depends which nations. I mean, it comes back to the fact that, you know, if we are going to enter a phase of prolonged low oil price, we have this problem of balancing with supply, supply with demand. And even before the crises, we had a situation where both oil and gas prices were, were actually quite quite soft because there was mounting supply and demand growth was faltering. So if we move into a situation where we have plentiful supply of fossil fuels at a relatively low price, then all eyes turn to the cost of production to see who is still in the money, who is still in the market. And so the countries with the lowest lifting costs, and that's primarily the Middle East, um, but also Russia, because it plays tricks with exchange rates, can, can actually continue to make quite a lot of, of money at low cost. That's not the case, perhaps, in the United States, where they're going to need a higher cost. And it's certainly not the case with things like Canadian oil sands, where they need an even higher cost. So we could see a, a permanent change in the geography of production. We would see a, a settling back of the amount of oil production in the United States. It won't disappear. You know, there will still be a significant amount of production, but a at a lower level. All of this would have geopolitical consequences. But equally, the other other issue is is what what is what we call the social cost of oil, and the social cost of oil is the oil price that those countries need to balance their budgets, and that is very high in many of those countries. And in in, in Saudi Arabia, it's approaching eighty dollars a barrel. So you can see already that they are running a deficit and they're drawing down on their rainy day fund. And so longer term, you know, the writing is on the wall. They're going to have to diversify. Now it's a kind of the future in fast forward. 
but obviously eventually climate change represents that existential threat to oil demand and they'll find that they need to do something else. Now the 26th session of the UN Climate Change Conference, so-called COP26, has been cancelled. It was due to meet in November as I understand it. What are the knock-on effects of that likely to be? I think that the whole question of what was going to happen at COP26 was, was very much up in the air because the previous COP, which had taken place in Madrid, was quite disappointing. I think they spent all their time arguing about the rule book and making very little progress. What should be happening at this stage in the Paris Agreement is that countries, individual countries, should be increasing their ambition to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So the, the, the official term is ratcheting up uh, what they are planning to do in their nationally determined contributions. But there was growing resistance in some quarters to that because of the cost of doing it, if nothing else, but also those who were fossil fuel producers obviously had a different set of interests. The problem now is that the world is, go is preoccupied, understandably, first with constraining and trying to mitigate the impact of the pandemic. But then coming out of the pandemic, the emphasis is going to be on economic recovery. And the big question mark is, will that recovery be actually green in nature, if you like, green tinged to try and accelerate the process of, of decarbonisation and clean growth? Or will we rein back our environmental ambitions just to get, get the jobs back and, and any type of industry functioning as a kind of quick and dirty response? And as you yourself have written, it's a quick and dirty recovery versus a slower but cleaner and greener alternative. Yeah, I mean, and if we look back at 2008, we saw that very quickly after the 2008-9 financial crisis, the rate of growth of global emissions was back on path to what it had been. And of course, that's the situation we find ourselves in today. There will be a significant reduction in emissions this year. But whether that's a lasting reduction and whether, in fact, we get back into accelerating the actual rate of emissions because of the kind of quick and dirty approach remains to be seen. So I think there's a, there's a lot of debate out there at the moment about you know, wanting to adopt what might call a no regrets policy, that we don't say get to the end of the decade and realise that our actions that we've taken to deal with economic recovery have actually made the climate change situation worse. So do you think the environmental groups have the same momentum now to drive through their plan to reinvigorate the sustainability market in terms of a, a green new deal? I think it's going to vary around the world. I think there are some key issues and areas to watch. I think in the European Union, they have a green, uh, green growth strategy, which they were just rolling out and trying to, to start to implement. And so already, I think there is some discord among member states as to the extent to which they should stick to that. In the United States, much will depend on the outcome of the presidential elections in the autumn because the Democrats have supported the notion of a Green New Deal. In China, it's interesting because I think the people in China have got used to having clean, clean air and blue skies as a consequence of the economic downturn. And maybe there will be, even before this, there was growing popular resistance to the levels of air pollution and, and the health impacts of those. So it might be that we do see a change in public sentiment, which the environmental groups can then use to, to hold governments to account to say, yes, recovery, but not recovery at all costs, because actually climate change is an even bigger threat than a pandemic. And of course, what no one knows is what our attitude to travel is going to be. Air travel, travel in general, commuting on buses and trains, even driving our own cars. Yeah, that's, that's a really 
interesting question, you know, um, and I think we have, A, we have to guard against the way we see the world through to our lenses, living in industrially developed economies, you know, wealthy economies, um, where we take these things for granted. Um, in a lot of parts of the world, that is not the case. But you know, we, we can, for example, change our patterns of work. We can reduce the amount of time we spend in offices and work from home and all those other things. The big question is, we've done an awful lot to change our habits in a very short period of time. And many companies are realizing that, you know, that they can make change quickly. But how, how much of that will be enduring is difficult to say because, the, you know, at the moment, COVID-19 is with us for a prolonged period. But longer term, you know, what of the things that we're doing now will remain enduring in terms of our attitude towards travel, working from home, the ability to use video conferencing and, and realizing that all those international business travel is not necessary. Certainly in academia, we've realized that actually we're talking far more to our colleagues around the country and around the world than we were before. So those conversations are going on all the time. Why didn't we do more of this before? So yes, but the question is how much is going to stick? And because that depends on whether it does make a difference to, to travel patterns and ultimately demand for oil, for example. And as you say, there's a fine line to hold. We want to fulfil the Paris Agreement, but also want to manage transition, which presumably means oil consumption and demand will have to rise to something like pre-COVID levels. Yes and no. I, I'm not entirely sure that it's my own view is I'm not entirely sure it is going to recover to those levels because I think some of these issues will be enduring. I would like to think also that maybe this is, a, this is a, the harshest of wake-up calls um, for those producer economies reliant on oil and gas exports. But I come back to my previous observation that actually the markets were in trouble before this. This is exceptionally, it is what has happened with this current situation is it's exaggerated and extremist the market tendencies that there was we are in an age of fossil fuel abundance and we have growing constraints on consumption because of climate change and that's the kind of new energy order we've talked about in the past climate change has not gone away and we have an abundance of fossil fuels at a high price so it's balancing those two things and i think the net result and even before this there was a school of thought of sort of lower for longer or lower forever in terms of fossil fuel prices the challenge there is if fossil fuel prices are low, you have to intervene by putting taxes on them or taxes on carbon to stop people binging on cheap fuel. Now, you touched on this earlier, but let's go into it in a bit more detail. What are the implications for the two dominant oil producing economies, Russia and Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia first. In Saudi Arabia, in some ways, uh, had already realised the challenges that lay ahead. They put in place the so-called Vision 2030 um, and have had a, a set of policies, projects, programmes to try and diversify the economy and prepare themselves for a world when the, 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 the oil rents start to dry up. Uh, and the problem now, of course, is that even those, those projects, the 2030 vision projects, are having to be cut back because the, the finances are, are, are very unhealthy at the moment. I think something like a 20% cut in government expenditure in Saudi Arabia. So there's a fine balance to be struck in Saudi Arabia, I think, between actually continuing on a recovery package that advances Vision 2030 and dealing with the growing social costs of a very young population that it expects to be employed, have decent jobs and a high living standard. And it's, make, it's striking that balance, which is a 
the challenge for the ruling elite in Saudi Arabia. And just explain what the relationship is between those domestic goals and the magic $80 a barrel price. Well, that $80 a barrel price is, is what they need to balance the budget. So prices below that mean they are drawing down on their reserves. And actually, since 2014-15, when, when they previously tried to, to push down the price and try and force U.S. shale out of the market, they spent about a half of the trillion dollars of reserves that they've had and they, because they've been running at a deficit. And they're going to continue to run at a deficit. And they still have, they'll still be burning reserves, but also they will borrow a lot of money because they are a wealthy nation and they're probably good for their credit. And they've got quite a lot of, of money tied up in assets overseas. So it's really how, whether or not they can use a recovery and have the financial resilience to see it through, to get to a more sustainable future. And in terms of diversifying their economy beyond oil, uh, is it a goer if they're $60 light per barrel? It's going to be a challenge. It was a challenge even before. And I think some of the things they thought were diversification, like moving into refining, capturing more value added, were actually not really diversifying. They were linked to the oil economy in the same set of business cycles. But ultimately, it's as much about finding jobs. So changes have been made in terms of, of creating jobs for Saudi citizens. So Saudi citizens are now working in, in the sort of the hotel service industries where they previously didn't work. I think there's going to be kind of a resetting of the social contract to make it clear that what they call the non-oil sector is going to have to grow to create the jobs. And Saudis are going to have to work in jobs that previously they didn't work in. And what about Russia? Very different set of circumstances. I mean, Russia has a much lower social cost of oil today, about well, $42 a barrel. It sounds very precise, but that's the price uh, at which above $42 a barrel, they put money into the National Wealth Fund. They learned some very hard lessons in 2014-15 and previously in 2008, and again earlier, where the social cost of oil to balance the budget had risen to over $100 a barrel. So post-2014-15, the government cut back expenditure and put funds back into the sovereign, into their sovereign wealth fund, the National Wealth Fund. And so that, that sort of fiscal discipline has served them in good stead because they have replenished their reserves. But it's come at a cost in the sense that the government has not had as much money to reinvest in the economy and actually has chosen to do some things with that money, like modernizing the military, um, rather than dealing with social issues. And of course, at the same time, Russia has been under sanctions since 2014, and that's added to the problem. So in Russia, we've seen of late a fairly sluggish economic growth and a significant fall in the standard of living of, of Russian people. Uh, and Putin well understands this because at the, at the turn of the year, just as they, they were starting to manoeuvre to make the constitutional reform so he could stay in power, he announced a major plan of, of public expenditure, so-called national projects, um, in part to try and address these issue of the lack of government support and falling living standards. And that was all going swimmingly. And then, of course, the pandemic struck, or before that, the oil price crash, which was instigated in large part by Putin. So now Russia finds itself in a familiar situation, unfortunately, of dwindling reserves from oil and gas exports um, and the situation in terms of the government government is now having to 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 delve into reserves to uh, to address 
the problems being created by the pandemic. The other trick that it plays is to allow the ruble to devalue because that means that it can keep domestic costs low. Saudi Arabia doesn't have that uh, benefit because it, its currency is tied to the dollar and the dollar is gaining in strength. So there are various things that Russia is used to doing in a crisis like this. It's had plenty of them. The one thing it doesn't seem to do is to learn the lesson that it needs to think seriously about diversification. And more worrying than that, in the midst of all of this, it passed a new energy strategy to 2035, which is premised on developing more oil and gas. So it, it doesn't seem that it is trying to future-proof itself at all. And we shouldn't get too carried away. I mean, it's a much larger and more diversified economy than Saudi Arabia. But 40-50% of government revenue comes from oil, and you can chart economic growth rates against the price of oil and the value of the ruble in Russia to see a very clear relationship. And so that there has been talk previously about diversification, but it tends to be a very sort of top-down, state-orchestrated approach, which hasn't really worked. And in fact, under sanctions, they've driven a policy of import substitution, but that too has benefited the resource sector. They are literally addicted to these rents, and these rents prop up the broader political economy and the ruling elite. And are Russia's problems today ultimately going to be ours tomorrow? Difficult to say. You know, the fact that Russia has, has modernised its military, it has been fairly, you know, it's been aggressive in terms of annexation of Crimea and its involvement in Ukraine. There's no doubt it's currently mischief-making elsewhere around the world. And President Putin has been quite outspoken about his view that you know the liberal democracies as a model have, are past their sell-by date. But I'm not sure that his model for Russia is actually going to result in sustainable recovery. So there's a lot to play for for Putin in Russia at the moment. Now, if we come back to the ecological side of things, um, environmentalists might welcome lower demand for fossil fuels, but that transition needs to be carefully managed. And if it isn't, what then? Well, it's interesting because in the last few years, people like Mark Carney, the former head of the, of the Bank of England, have, have become increasingly concerned about what the Bank of England calls transitional risk. And that's the financial risk associated with this process of the decline of the fossil fuel economy and the growth of a new economy, uh, because it risks problems like stranded assets, where wealth is retained in the fossil fuel sector, but there is not sufficient demand for its products. So the notion of transition risk highlights the financial risks associated with the transition. And we've all got a stake in this because major financial markets are heavily involved in the fossil fuel economy. And therefore, there's a need to manage that transition. And so there's a process of carbon disclosure at the moment where central banks are being asked and corporations are being asked to quantify their exposure to the reduction in the value of, of the fossil fuel economy, for example. So what do you think the fossil fuel landscape, as it were, will look like after this pandemic's come under control? There are obviously going to be fewer companies. In the United States already, bankruptcies are accelerating, but they were there beforehand. I think in the US we're going to see a smaller, more consolidated industry, perhaps with a significant reduction in overall production, which will have consequences globally because the United States was starting to become an, an exporter and influencer of markets. And I think a further concentration of production on those low-cost producers in the Middle East, and maybe a world where we have a boundary between $40 and $60 a barrel where there's plentiful oil to be had, and the level of oil demand on the, is a result on the one hand, the ability of oil producers to manage it, 
and on the other hand, the role of policy, climate change policy, and the rate of economic growth in constraining the amount of fossil fuel demand. So it's going to be a delicate balance to be struck. And if, the, if one of the things that comes out of this is that the world recognizes the need to work together and that individual actions can transmit into large outcomes, and there is a determination to address climate change, then it's accelerated the transition and made adjusting, made it, made it more important for the oil producing economies, for oil companies and the financial system to adjust to the transition. And what about the green energy landscape? Difficult to say because it depends on the nature of the response to the current recession. You know, green energy requires finance, but it equally and perhaps more importantly, it requires policy support. You know, so one of the reasons at the moment we see in Europe, in, in, in the UK and probably in the United States as well, very high levels of, pro of production of renewable energy is because they are first in the queue and they get to dispatch their power. But equally, if, if countries have binding targets, and the European Union does, the UK does, in terms of carbon reduction and sticks to those, to those targets, then there should be more support for green energy. And, and I think also, I meant as, uh, you know, this issue of urban air pollution, for example, people are, have come to realize the role that the internal combustion engine and, and industry plays in polluting the atmosphere. And so there may be public sentiment that says, we really want to do something about this. And that will help support green industry. Uh, just to stray into the world of unforeseen consequences for a moment. I mean, it's a small example and perhaps not significant at all. But we've seen in recent weeks, for example, the demand for, the need for, single-use plastics. And that runs counter to what we thought was received wisdom only a few months ago. I mean, is there any more unforeseen stuff on the horizon? Undoubtedly, I mean, but but interesting. The single-use plastics is a, is a is an example. If you go back to why did we decide to have this campaign globally against them, it actually came down to one television program making clear the scale of the problem, which accelerated very rapidly into a consumer backlash against them. I think yes, if I'm, you know if there is a need for more of that in the short term maybe there will also equally be a pressing need to do it in a way that's not going to aggravate existing problems. So uh, I think it's come back to, it comes back to this notion of sort of no regrets. Yes, in, in adversity, in haste, we will do certain things, but we need to also be, be wary that we're not creating more problems down the line unintended consequences. And coming back to Russia for a moment, do you think President Putin could muddy the waters, as it were? I mean, you said that he believes things that are surprising, outrageous perhaps to Western ears, that liberal democracies have had their day. Isn't he also seeing green energy as a kind of dastardly foreign policy challenge to Russia's preeminence as a, an oil and gas exporter? Yes, very much so. And that's written to its own energy doctrine and its, its notions of what are threats to its own national interests and concerted, concerted effort to decarbonize, to promote green energy, to reduce demand for fossil fuels is, is seen as a threat to its interests. And, you know, it's not, a, although it has ratified the Paris Agreement, you know, it's not a fan, it's a mischief maker. But again, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens, whether Putin gets his constitutional referendum or not, so he can extend his power into the 2030s. If not, 
then, you know, we'll have to see what happens. I think there's always a lot of wishful thinking in the West that Russia will suddenly become more like us and easier to deal with. But history tells us that that's not the case. But uh, we'll have to see. So just winding this up now, do you think plans for an energy transition have been derailed or are they still on course? I think a bit of both in the sense that what it has done is given us a, you know, this fast forward vision of the future when we were discussing you know, the rates of decline in fossil fuels and people were saying, well, that's never going to happen. We've seen that actually things can happen, but it actually takes dramatic change to make them happen. But the consequences of an unmanaged fossil fuel decline are clear for all to see. There's a school of thought in the oil industry that actually says that because we're not investing now, we're going to end up with much higher prices in the future. What that would do actually is accelerate moving away from oil even more rapidly. You know, we have to wait and see. In some parts of the world, yes, it will accelerate things. There will be determination to go green. In others, I think it will be a question of not having the necessary investment or the political inclination to do it. I think it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in China versus the European Union versus the United States in this space and what that means for the Middle East. So should we be nervously holding our breath or actively alarmed at energy prospects for the future? I mean, I, I, you know, the economists are sort of arguing about what type of recovery we're going to have, whether it's going to be this, this deep V where things fall very rapidly, but then they rebound quickly and we're back on a road uh, towards positive growth. The alternative is, is more of a, a sort of broad U where we go into a prolonged slump and then there's a slow recovery. There is a third alternative, which is what Greece did after the 2008 crisis, which is, is to actually have a massive slump and then bounce along the bottom. Let's hope we don't go there. But I, I don't see the rapid recovery of this sharp V. I see a, a, a prolonged period of, of, of recession and a slow recovery. I mean, that in itself will put a break on global emissions. But the question is, you know, will, as we come out of that growth, will we have, out of that slump, will we have put in place meaningful change, long-term change that, that accelerates this decoupling of energy consumption, carbon emissions and economic growth. And only time will tell. Michael, thank you for sharing your thoughts. Michael Bradshaw, Professor of Global Energy at Warwick Business School, talking to me, Trevor Barnes, for this Core Insights podcast.